Welcome to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. What do we do when, when people think and live differently than us? How do we respond? I, I know not everybody in the room and, and even those listening online goes to Mizzou, but I, I was looking at uh, Mizzou's student body profile the other day, and, and, and I found out, you probably already know this, that there are about 31,000 students at the University of Missouri, con- combining undergrad and graduate students, 31,000. 53% of those 31,000 are women, 47% are men. And what was actually interesting to me, that not so much, but, but was, was this, that there are students at Mizzou from every county in the state of Missouri. There are students at Mizzou from every county in the state of Missouri. Even more, there are students at Mizzou from every state in the United States. Even more than that, there are students from over 120 countries in the world at Mizzou. Now, maybe that's interesting to you, maybe it's not, but, but I want you to think for a second, I want you to think for a second about the differences that those statistics represent. The differences in, in thoughts and opinions, the differences in backgrounds, in life experiences, the differences that we have in beliefs, the differences that people in college really have See, and because that's true, because those, those differences are so vast, I think I'm stating the obvious, but the possibility for, for misunderstanding and, and at times offending each other, it's almost unending, isn't it? How should we respond when people disagree with us, when they think differently than us, when they live differently, when people have different hopes and dreams, hurts and fears? What do we do if and when people misrepresent us? When they misunderstand or misconstrue or misrepresent our actions and our motives and our intentions, how do we respond? Well, Jesus says that that you and I, we should treat other people the way that they treat us, right? No, that's not what he says. Jesus never said that. But even though that Jesus never said that, don't we sometimes kind of wish he did? Don't we kind of wish he did, if we're honest? Or maybe it's not that we wish he did. We actually live like he did. We treat others the way they treat us. We think about other people the way they think about us. We we talk about other people the way that they talk about us. Jesus never said to do that, and yet sometimes that's how we live. I'll be the first to admit that I certainly do. As I was reflecting on this, I, I, I couldn't help but think the The sarcastic comment here, the mean tone of voice there, a a belittling or dismissive thought that I have about someone, my tendency to slip into name calling or pigeonholing or gossip. See, I'm for sure guilty of these things. And maybe you're like me, maybe you can relate. 
several years ago in upstate New York at Syracuse University, an associate professor by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote an article for the local newspaper. In uh, uh, the article, it was, a, it was an opinion, it was an op-ed. The, the article that she wrote uh, bashed Christianity. See, Rosaria Butterfield was a self-described radical liberal feminist in a committed lesbian relationship, and she thought that the claims of the Bible, she thought that Jesus and the things that Jesus stood for were absolutely ridiculous. And so she took it upon herself to make sure that, that people in her area, that her readers knew that. And she goes on to say that not long after that editorial was published, the responses, they came pouring in. Right, And of course, some of what came in was praise for what she had written, but a lot of it, maybe even most of it, was hate. Hate toward her. Hate toward her ideas. Hate toward what she had done. Hate toward who she was. She writes in her autobiography that she received so many responses for that one editorial that, that she eventually, she, she got two big boxes and in, in on her desk in her office, she put one on one side of the desk and, and one on the other. One for all the fan mail and, and one for the hate mail. Two big boxes, fan mail, hate mail. I've been thinking a lot about those boxes lately for various reasons, things going on in my life, but mostly because I think that those boxes represent well what we often see in our culture, if not do ourselves, to people with ideas and lives different than our own. I think in particular we do at least a couple things. And one is that we tend to separate ourselves. We have this tendency to, to separate ourselves from people who are different than us. We, we, we kind of subconsciously or maybe consciously, we divide the world between us and them, those who are like us and those who are different. To prove this point, Facebook actually knows this so much, they've started capitalizing on that idea in a recent ad campaign. Let's watch. Maybe you've seen this commercial. We were lost in a vast desert, completely devoid of Basset Hounds. Then, it appeared, a beacon of hope. I'm back in baby's arms. More glorious than a billion sunsets. We were found. Found by the hounds. It's a good ad, right? Facebook knows, Facebook knows that there's a desire in all of us, whether we're a basset hound or a person, there's a desire in all of us to be with our people, people that, that look like us, people that think like us, people that act like us. Now, of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to be with people like us, and yet what's, becoming, what's become so common in our culture is to demonize anyone that's not in our group. Us and them becomes good versus bad. You're good if you agree with me and our group, and you're bad if you don't. And I think, as I've been thinking about this, I think in our worst moments, I think when that happens, feelings start to guide our interpretation of reality. And so we think things like, well, if you aren't with me, you're against me. And we leave little room for disagreement. Uh, maybe we, we act like mind readers, 
right? We, we think we know what people are like. We think we know what people are thinking. We, we think we know who people are based off our assumptions of them. We try to read them. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Talking to Strangers, he talks about this idea, and he gives a great example of this. This is paraphrasing, of course, but, but he says, think about a judge, right? One of the main uh, uh, jobs of a judge is to decide uh, when someone has been charged with a crime, is to decide whether or not that person should be able to be released on bail until their trial or, or they need to stay in jail. And it's an incredibly important decision, right? Because, because uh, if you choose incorrectly, if you get it wrong, well, then you, you leave the door open for that criminal to, to potentially commit another crime while they're out on bail. So he goes on, he, he shares the story. It's a well-educated young man. He's got no prior history of crime, uh, nothing violent in his past, but he tries to murder his girlfriend with a gun one night. Now, thankfully, the gun misfires, and, and it didn't happen, but, of course, he's arrested, and, and at this initial hearing, Gladwell talks about this, this young man, he's, he's incredibly sorrowful. He's, in, he's incredibly upset with himself. He's, he's clearly made a mistake. He says, you know, I did a terrible thing in the heat of a domestic argument, and most people actually believed him. They agreed with him. The judge actually released him on bail and said, you can come back. Uh, when your trial begins. Two weeks later, before the trial had started, he murdered his girlfriend. It's a terrible story. It's an awful, awful story. But his point is that, that judges have to make decisions by reading people. They have to read people. They have to look at people's faces. They have to hear people's responses. But here's the problem. Apparently, judges are only right on these decisions 54% of the time just a bit above a coin toss. Because this is true, some computer scientists, what they've done is they've, they've started creating artificial intelligence so that um, computers can analyze the written details of the same court cases. Clearly, they can't see faces, they can't hear people, they actually have less information, but get this, these computers have been 25% more accurate than human judges at determining who would commit another crime or not. 25% more accurate than human professional judges. What's the point? If judges aren't good mind readers, how much worse are we? How much worse are we at reading other people? See, I, I think, at least in my own life, I, I think it's so easy to misread people. It's so easy to assume the worst about others, and sometimes wrongly to focus on the negative at the exclusion of any positives. Sometimes we're, we're offended by, by the impact of what people do without even considering the intent behind why it happened. Now let me be clear when I say that. I'm not suggesting, I'm not suggesting that just because someone didn't intend to hurt someone means that they shouldn't be held, they can't be held accountable for what they've done, right? It's right and good to explain to others when we've been hurt by them. It's important that we explain that hurt. It's important that we help others learn why whatever was said or done was hurtful, whether they intended or not. We need to do that. We need to do that. I'm not delegitimizing the hurt and pain that we experience from people. But sometimes, but sometimes, this is what I'm saying, we get hurt because we assume the worst about people. 
We get hurt because we assume the worst about people. We jump to division. We label people as other. We label people as wrong. Sometimes even worse, we label people as evil. And so it quickly becomes us versus them, good versus bad, fan mail and hate mail. Now, dividing the world between good people and bad people is great for Avengers movies. It's terrible for society. It's terrible for society. But here's the deal. Sometimes it doesn't stop at just separating into groups. Sometimes we we see that it gets taken further. Those not in our group, whatever that group is, well, they get punished. How do they get punished? They're called out. They're publicly shamed for doing something, saying something that that one group finds offensive. I think we see this all the time in college, right? There's a great book, uh, Coddling of the American Mind. This is what one student describes about her experience with call-out culture in college. She says this. It's a bit long, so hang with me. She says, during my first days of college, I witnessed countless conversations that consisted of one person telling the other that their opinion was wrong. The word offensive was almost always included in the reasoning. With a few short weeks, members of my freshman class had quickly assimilated to this new way of non-thinking. They could soon detect a politically incorrect view and call the person out on their mistake. So I began to voice my opinion less and less often to avoid being berated and judged by a community that claims to represent the free expression of ideas. I learned along with every other student, to walk on eggshells for fear that I may say something offensive. That is the social norm here. But it's not just there. It's not just her experience. It's not just a unique experience. You see, reports from around the country are suggesting that an increasing amount of college students are walking around campus on eggshells, afraid of saying the wrong thing, liking the wrong post, defending the wrong cause out of fear that someone somewhere is going to call them out for being offensive. I was talking to a a guy the other day, kid you not, this is what he said. He said that his duty as a privileged white male was to call people out with wrong views so that he could give power to the weak. His duty as a white privileged male was to call people out with his idea of wrong views so that he could give power to the weak. It was some weird kind of lingual Robin Hood thing going on. Now, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. When legitimate evil happens, when bad things happen, Christians, as Christians, it's right and good for us to stand for goodness. It's right and good for us to stand for justice. We need to do that. We must do that. But I think we also need to ask ourselves if maybe, if just maybe our culture is training us to see people as evil when oftentimes they're not, they just disagree. They're just different than us. How do we combat tribalism, this idea that we separate into groups? How do we combat this this idea of call out or cancel culture? How do we ensure that we don't fall victims to it ourselves? Well, there are a lot of things that we could say, but, but for the rest of our time, I just wanna say, I wanna talk about one thing, and that's kindness, kindness. Back to uh, Rosaria Butterfield and her two boxes. She said out of all the responses uh, to that editorial that she wrote, of all the responses that that she received, one stood out in particular. It was written uh, by a local pastor. She didn't know him, uh, but he wrote and responded. And, And she said she received the letter and she read it. She put it down and she picked it up and she read it again. 
And she put it down and she picked it up. She read it again. She said she, she hates clutter on her desk, but she left it on her desk for a week. And she said that letter stared at her every day that she was at work. It just haunted her because she had no idea which box to put it in. She had no idea if it belonged with the hate mail or if it belonged with the fan mail. Why? Well, because on the one hand, the pastor completely disagreed with everything that she had said. But on the other, she said that he had done it with such kindness, such thoughtfulness, such authenticity that it really confused her. She she didn't know if, if this is hate mail or if this is fan mail. And she writes, she says that it was the kindest letter of opposition I've ever received. It's the kindest letter of opposition I've ever received. Kindness has power, doesn't it? Kindness has power. She eventually uh, called that pastor, met up with him and his wife, and you know what? Something crazy happened. Over time, over time, a radical lesbian feminist became good friends with a conservative Christian couple. They became friends. And you know what? God did something with that friendship because just a few years after that pastor sent her that letter, she put her faith and trust in Jesus and she became a Christian. How do we treat other people when they disagree with us, when they live differently than us? Kindness, it has power. More recent example, maybe you've seen this picture of Ellen DeGeneres and George Bush at a Cowboys game recently. It's drawn a fair amount of of attention, right? And and that attention has all been centered around the one question, why is a gay Hollywood liberal sitting next to a conservative Republican president? This is what she said a few days later. But during the game, they showed a shot of George and me laughing together. And uh, so... (laughs) People were upset. They thought, why is a gay Hollywood liberal sitting next to a conservative Republican president? Didn't even notice I'm holding the brand new iPhone 11. And, um, <laughs> but a lot of people were mad, and they did what people do when they're mad. They tweet. And, uh, but here's one tweet that I loved. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. And, um, I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay that we're all different. For instance, I wish people wouldn't wear fur. I don't like it, but but I'm friends with people who wear fur. And I'm friends with people who are furry, as a matter of fact. I have (laughs) friends who should tweeze more. And I I have... But just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. When I say be kind to one another, I don't mean only the people that think the same way that you do. I mean be kind to everyone. Doesn't matter. Um, I, I, even people who are already playing Christmas music. I mean, seriously. There's no excuse for that. But I'm kind to them. Anyway, I want to thank Jerry Jones, Charlotte Jones, for hosting us, and thanks President Bush and Laura for a Sunday afternoon that was so fun. By the way, you owe me $6 for the nachos. It's great, isn't it? She says, I want to go back to it. She says, when I say be kind to one another, I don't, mean kind, I don't mean be kind to only the people that think the same way as you. I mean be kind to everyone. Now, I have no idea, admittedly, I have no idea if Ellen DeGeneres is a Christian or not. But whether she is or she isn't, Jesus would absolutely agree with what she just said. Jesus would absolutely agree with what she just said. In fact, he said something similar. Matthew 7, verse 12.
Jesus says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. See, Jesus, said, Jesus never said, treat others the way they treat you. No, Jesus says in this verse, he says, treat others how you want to be treated. It's the golden rule, right? And there's a big difference. Treat others how they treat you? No. Treat others how you want to be treated. And I think kindness is at the heart of treating other people the way that we want to be treated. But what does it actually mean to be kind? What, is it, what does it mean to be kind? Of course, being kind is, it, it can be as simple as, as saying something nice, having a gentle presence, smiling, being courteous towards others. But I think being kind is, is far more than that. See, being kind means being willing to do something for others. It means choosing to do so even when you don't have to. Kindness means having a desire to help others, to encourage and comfort them, to, to do something for their benefit, even if it's costly, even if it's inconvenient for us. And in fact, I think, I think kindness is, is often exactly that. Costly, inconvenient. See, I think another way of defining kindness is, is saying that kindness is, is essentially loving other people enough to put their needs ahead of your own. Kindness is essentially loving other people enough to put their needs ahead of your own. But here's a question. Okay, that's fine. That's kindness. What, but why? Why should we be kind? I mean, Jesus tells us to treat others how we want to be treated, but, but Why? Well, we sometimes like to pull that verse out, isolate it because it's the golden rule, but, but look at it in context. Back up just one verse, picking up in verse 11. This is what Jesus says. He says, if you then, who are evil, Jesus is just talking about the, the inherent sinfulness that every human being has and experiences. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that, Jesus, that, that we should treat other people the way that, that we want to be treated because that's exactly what God has done and will do for you and for me in Jesus. See, catch this, it's really important. Jesus isn't interested. Jesus is not interested in simply behavior modification. That's just emphasizing right living over right believing. It, it, it removes Jesus from the picture and it says, just go be a good person. That's what Austin talked about last week. If you miss it, check it out on our podcast. It was a good sermon. Cliff notes, we aren't good people. We're needy people. And the good news is that Jesus meets us in our need. Titus 3, verse four. But when the kindness in love of God, our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, you see, Jesus, in his kindness and love, he sees our need. He sees our need, but he doesn't just see it. He doesn't just know it exists. He's willing to do something about it. He didn't have to, but he offered up his life to save us. He gives his life to save us, not because of our own righteousness, Paul says, not, not because of anything that we've done or anything that we can do or, or anything that we will do, but because of Jesus' great mercy. Great mercy that you and I don't deserve. 
We don't deserve it. Neither did the people of, of Jesus' day. You see, many didn't care about him. Many were uninterested in him. Many mocked him. But Jesus has compassion. See, in his kindness and his love, he has compassion for people. Why? Because he says he looks out in the Gospel of Matthew, it says he looks out, he sees all the people around. And he sees that they're harassed and they're helpless by a culture that doesn't quite know what to do and think and believe and filled with differences. And he says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Even when Jesus, you know, if if you read the Gospels, you you know that sometimes Jesus says really hard things. Even when Jesus says hard things, even when Jesus says something challenging, he does it with kindness. He does it with kindness. He He always has people's best interest in mind. It's who he was. It's it's who he is. And and you know what? It's it's who he's calling you and me to be. See, kindness. I think sometimes we kind of think that well, well, that's for some people. Right, or it's, it's all my good days, I'll, I'll be kind. No, kindness is not optional for anyone in the Christian life. It's not optional. Paul writes in Galatians chapter five, picking up in verse 22, familiar verses I'm sure for you. He says this, but, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, this isn't, Paul's not giving us a list of of moral virtues to attempt and attain. No, he's saying that following Jesus should should bring these things, of all things, should bring these character qualities out in our lives. I I think that's why he uses the the fruit metaphor. You know, if a tree is alive, it's going to bear fruit. That's the nature of being a living tree, right? Fruit is what you get when a tree is alive, And so similarly, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, the the fruit of God's Spirit working in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He said that's going to grow in our lives when we follow Jesus, when we're alive in Christ. See, among many things, kindness, kindness should be the mark of every Christian Kindness should mark the character of every Christian, not just some, not just every once in a while. Kindness should should characterize who we are, not just what we do, because God has been kind to us in Jesus. Uh, But if kindness, to steal Paul's metaphor, is supposed to be fruit in our lives, if it's supposed to be fruit in our lives, and that means that it doesn't just happen naturally, it doesn't just grow on its own, Sure, some of us are more kind than others, but, but for all of us, being kind is going to have to be something that we cultivate. It's gonna have to become something that's a habit, something, something that we practice regularly so that builds into our character and it becomes part of who we are. Well, how do we do that? How do we cultivate kindness in our lives? Just real practical. Just real practical for the next week. Maybe think about it like this. How do I cultivate kindness? Start by asking God to give you opportunities. Start by, giving, by asking God to give you opportunities to show kindness to others, to have eyes to see. Who can I go out of my way to thank this week? Who can I go out of my way to, to appreciate this week? 
Who, who in my life, who around me, who in my class, is at my job, in my fraternity or sorority, who can I encourage? Whose needs can I help be a part of meeting? Maybe you can't meet them all, but I'm a small part. Whose needs can I meet? Even if it's inconvenient, even if it costs me something, even if it's hard. Who in my life needs comfort? Who needs comfort? Who in my life can I serve this week? Who can I serve? Chris Wright, one of my favorite authors, he gives a couple questions, a couple additional things to to ask ourselves as we're thinking about this idea of cultivating kindness in our lives. He He says, ask these two questions. First, what would I do for people if I were Jesus? What would I do for people if I were Jesus? And second, he says, what would I do for people if they were Jesus? What would I do for people if I were Jesus? What would I do for people if they were Jesus? How would that change our lives if we lived like that? How would that change our lives if we lived, if we asked those questions? What sort of difference would it make in the way that we treated people? What sort of difference would it make? What kinds of links of kindness would we be willing to go to if we asked ourselves those questions and lived out the answers every day? What kind of difference would it make in our lives? As a Romanian pastor, Richard Wormbrand, awesome name, um, he was imprisoned and tortured under com- the communist re- regime in Romania several years ago. And, and, and later in a book that he wrote, uh, he tells the story of this time where he was um, tortured and then thrown back into a prison cell with, with a bunch of other men. Um, and he's, he's in this prison cell, and, and he remembers uh, pretty vividly, because of the traumatic experience, uh, that it's freezing cold. It's freezing cold. The only thing that he had, the only thing that was kind of giving him any sort of, you know, will to live was, was this thin little blanket that he had. It was keeping him warm. That was all he had. And he remembers, you know, grasping that blanket, using it, keeping him warm. Um, and he looks up, and he notices a guy across the cell in the back corner. The guy similarly had, had just been beaten, had just been tortured. Um, and he sees this guy, and this guy's just shivering uncontrollably, doesn't have a blanket. And so this Romanian pastor, he says, you know, when you see someone else so cold, and, and you know you yourself are cold, and you got this little blanket, what did he do? He, he held his blanket even tighter, right? He brought it closer to himself. This is the only thing that's keeping me warm right now. This is the only thing that's keeping me alive until he had this thought in his mind. If that man over in that corner were Jesus, would I give him my blanket? If that man were Jesus, would I give him my blanket? And at least for him, the answer was obvious, and that's what he did. He got up and he gave him the blanket. Music team can come back up. Uh, why, Why be kind to others when they don't deserve it? Why should you and I be kind to other people when they don't deserve it? Because that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. Notice we we, we read earlier, notice that that we we weren't friends with Jesus when he died for us. We weren't friends with Jesus when he died for us. Paul says that, that in Romans 5 that we were still enemies with God. When we were still enemies with God, Jesus died for us. And in his love and kindness, Jesus goes and meets our need. Jesus freely gives his kindness. Do we? Will we? 
See, how, how should we respond when people disagree with us, when, when they think differently than us, when they misrepresent us, when they misunderstand or misconstrue or misrepresent our intentions, our actions? How should we respond? I think Jesus is saying to us tonight, start with kindness. Start with kindness. An author once said that the result of kindness, the result of kindness is that it draws people to you. The result of kindness is that it draws people to you. Well, maybe, probably, but far more than that, we as Christians can say the end result of kindness is that it draws people to Jesus. See, Rosaria Butterfield, she said that it was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. The kindest letter of opposition that I've ever received. Treat others the way that you want to be treated because that's exactly what God has done for you in Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.